political normalcy cannot bring about the bold change so sorely needed in this country. We'll also take you to the resistance in the streets, as well as engage listeners on their vision of how to transform America. That's normalcy. Never again. The Biden inauguration and the National People's Mandate, presented by WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, Wednesday, 11 a.m. until 8 p.m. Pacifica Radio, visioning a new world, one broadcast at a time. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. This is a listener-sponsored community radio station providing UA Pacifica. State of mind since 1960. The time now was 5 p.m. Stay tuned for the Independent News Hour coming up. Welcome to the Independent News Hour in the headlines today. Washington, D.C. is on edge on the eve of Joe Biden's inauguration. The Keystone XL pipeline appears to be history. And the NYPD arrests at least 29 people at an MLK Day protest for black lives. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest news at independent.org. In the news... Washington, D.C. is still on edge as President-elect Joe Biden prepares to be sworn in tomorrow as the 46th president of the United States. 25,000 National Guard troops are stationed in the nation's capital. In the wake of the January 6th insurrection, the FBI is doing background checks on the troops to ensure that they have not been infiltrated by right-wing extremists. Biden will take office as the COVID-19 death toll is just shy of 400,000 and the economy teeters. He promised over the weekend to extend a federal eviction moratorium through September. Next week, we'll take action to extend nationwide restrictions on evictions and foreclosures. This will provide, this will provide more than 25 million Americans greater stability instead of living on the edge every single month. And I'm asking Congress to do its part by funding rental assistance for 14 million hard-hit families and tenants. It will also be a bridged economic recovery for countless mom-and-pop landlords. Biden is expected to issue a blitz of executive orders upon taking office. One of those, it's being reported, will rescind permission for completing the Keystone XL pipeline. Indigenous people, environmentalists, and local landowners in Nebraska and South Dakota have fought to stop the pipeline for over a decade. The pipeline would have delivered upwards of 800,000 gallons per day of tar sands oil from Canada to the Texas Gulf Coast. Kim Frazik of New York City-based Sane Energy applauded the apparent victory and called on Biden to do more. Let's first acknowledge this victory is because of years of indigenous-led organizing. And although it's a good indication that the incoming administration will stop KXL on day one, we should be wary of false victories. The only way to zero emissions is not building any fossil fuels. Biden needs to halt line three, dapple, and all of the gas and oil fracking immediately, as well as reparations for the affected communities. Or it will be necessary for us to fight these pipelines across the country and here in New York City, like the North Brooklyn Pipeline and its injustice for years rather than building renewables. Trump's term in office ends tomorrow at 12 noon. Between now and then, he is expected to issue scores of pardons and commutations of prison sentences. Among those under consideration are former New York State Assembly Speaker Sheldon Silver and the rapper Little Wayne. It remains unclear whether Trump will seek to preemptively pardon himself or his family members. Among those who are unlikely to receive a presidential pardon are whistleblowers Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, reality winner, and Native American activist Leonard Peltier. Peltier has been incarcerated since 1977, following a shootout at South Dakota's Pine Ridge Reservation that left 
two FBI agents and one Lakota Sioux member dead. Peltier and his supporters have long insisted that he was framed by the government and had no role in the shootings. Here in New York, outrage is growing after the NYPD violently broke up a Black Lives Matter protest last night outside of City Hall on Martin Luther King Day. At least two demonstrators were injured and 29 arrested. The protest started outside the Barclays Center in downtown Brooklyn and continued over the Brooklyn Bridge before arriving near City Hall. No justice! No justice! No justice! We will talk with one of the organizers of last night's march in our first segment after the headlines. The NYPD also marked Luther King Day last night by attacking striking workers at the Hunts Point Produce Market in the South Bronx. The workers, who are members of Teamsters Local 202, were seeking a $1 per hour pay raise while trying to prevent produce trucks from crossing their picket line. On Sunday, community leaders in the adjacent South Bronx neighborhood of Mott Haven rallied against police brutality, speaking outside of the 40th Precinct Station at 136th and Brook Avenue. They demanded that NYPD leaders who orchestrated the kettling and mass arrests of more than 250 peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters on June 4th be held accountable for their actions. This is Bronx Assembly Member Amanda Septimo. NYPD is out of excuses. Whether there was a belief of a larger threat on June 4th or not, the reality is that on the ground that day were families, children, individuals, essential workers, and community members standing together peacefully who were met by a brutal force that cannot be justified in any way. When I come back, I'll speak with a Black Lives Matter organizer about last night's events, and then we'll be joined by newly seated Brooklyn State Senator Jabari Brisport. That was Bridge Over Troubled Waters by Aretha Franklin. And you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI, WBAI Radio in New York. We turn now to last night's Black Liberation March to City Hall. It ended with the NYPD attacking the crowd and arresting at least 29 people. This occurred on Martin Luther King Day, no less. 
We are now joined by Jess, one of the organizers of the march, which began at the Barclays Center in downtown Brooklyn and headed over the Brooklyn Bridge before arriving near City Hall. Jess, thanks for coming on the show. Jess, are you there? Not yet. Okay, so we're we're still we're still waiting for her, um, and uh, we hope uh, we hope Jess can uh, join us shortly. Uh, just to uh, update people, if you didn't catch it in the headlines, uh, there was a there was a march uh, yesterday uh, to celebrate Martin Luther King Day, a march for Black liberation. Uh, about three hundred people. Uh, rallied at the Barclays uh, Center in downtown Brooklyn at Atlantic Ave in Flatbush and uh, marched over to the Brooklyn Bridge and they uh, took over uh, one side of the road and and marched uh, on into Manhattan and came down the Brooklyn Bridge over to where the municipal building is and where uh, City Hall is at Chambers and and, um, Center Street. And from that point, uh, things got, got tense uh the 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 police uh uh pushed some people out of the road and onto the sidewalk and once people were back on the sidewalk the NYPD continued to uh attack them continued to rush into the crowd and snatch people and and arrest them and at least 29 people were uh, arrested and a lot of people there's a lot of questions right now about why things had to be that way uh why the NYPD was uh, so aggressive once again. And um, okay, so I, I believe we have uh, Jess with us. Is that is that the case? No. Uh, okay, I'm sorry about that. Uh, looks like she's not uh, joining us yet. Uh, Hopefully, maybe we can uh, pull in our next uh, guest uh, in very shortly, uh, State Senator Jabari Brisport. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, last night's protest with the with the arrest, uh, with the arrests, and, and a couple of people uh, went to the hospital. All right. I, I believe we got we have um, we have a guest that's uh, ready to go. Okay, so I believe we're going to be uh, joined here by uh, uh, Jabari Bris- uh, State Senator Jabari Brisport. Senator Brisport, are, are you there? I am here, John. Great to see you. Okay, all right. It's great to have have you uh, back with us on uh, on WBAI. And um, uh, first of all, I, I want to hear a lot about how, how things are going for you at your new job up in uh, Albany. Uh, but first, I wanted to get your a reaction to last night's uh, events, both the the NYPD crackdown on the Black Liberation March uh, that arrived at City Hall, as well as the NYPD attacking uh, striking workers um, up in the South Bronx at the Hunts Point Produce Market. Um, people were arrested there as well. I mean, I just want to start first and foremost by saying, you know, deep on the cops, deep on the police, like this just speaks to the fact that policing is ultimately in and of itself and inherently a violent institution. So uh, I know you just spoke with someone who has been, been brutalized by the police and, you know, my heart goes out to them. And I'll, I'll be out with the on the striking workers at Hunt's Point uh, tonight, actually, with uh, several other of my, my socialist colleagues to, to stand in solidarity with the workers. Right. And, and last week, uh, um, New York Attorney General Letitia James uh, filed a, a lawsuit uh, uh, trying to Im- uh, looking to impose a, a monitor on the W uh, on the NYPD to uh, more closely scrutinize uh, how they handle protests. Is there anything else that uh, the state government can do uh, to try to address this situation here in New York? It it really seems like our mayor has uh, really checked out on this and has lost control of his police department. Yeah, of course. I, you know, a lot of times it's, these same police officers getting away with the same violent behavior over and over again. I know the state legislature repealed 50A last um, spring, summer, you know, to open up police records. 
and I'm actually um, putting forth an amendment soon with Assemblymember Harvey Epstein to strengthen what they did. Uh, you know, police, uh, the police unions have still found a way to shield their records and make it difficult to obtain. Um, so we are pushing a bill to ensure that these police records, especially those of violence, are publicly available and easily accessible for those who wish to see. Right. And uh, so that I mean, that's good to hear. I know, yeah, the police unions have really been fighting that uh, tooth and nail. Um, so, um, but, but now turning back to your arrival in, in Albany, uh, you, you ran for an open seat uh, last spring in the 25th district in uh, in Brooklyn, which uh, encompasses uh, neighborhoods in central and south Brooklyn, and, and you won by over 20 points. Uh, so you it seems like you really came to Albany with a, with a mandate. And uh, so what have you and your other socialist colleagues been focusing on in these, uh, these first days of the new session? Well, as always, we're supporting workers. So again, you know, several of us are heading up to the Hunt Point tonight to stand with the workers. But we've all been very focused on ensuring that we are fighting against the governor's proposed austerity budget because we know he is going to be pushing for service cuts to working class communities. And among social services, we are pushing to tax the rich um, and fund New York State um, to the tune of an additional $50 billion at least in annual revenue. And we actually released a response to the governor's state of the state with our own uh, socialist state of the state uh, last Thursday that we aired and invited more people to get on board with the campaign to increase taxes on the wealthiest people in our state and, and fund a much more robust social safety net. Right. And uh, can you talk more about uh, the strategy you all have in mind for for winning the, uh, $50 billion in tax increases on the rich when Governor Cuomo uh, for years hasn't budged on taxing them uh, one extra dime? Yeah, of course. We are leveraging the fact that we do have the supermajority now in both the Assembly and the Senate and that we have leadership in the Assembly and the Senate that is much more amenable to raising taxes on the wealthy um, than, uh, uh, than the governor has been, you know, ever. <laughs> and, you know, we have a lot of new colleagues that are more progressive. You know, we have more socialists and more, more left-leaning members of, of both chambers of, of the state legislature. And we'll be, you know, utilizing our own internal organizing and whatever outside organizing we can do with the Invest in Our New York Coalition to ensure that there's enough pressure um, from both outside and inside to, to, to pass this. Can you talk uh, some more about that coalition? Because uh, there's a lot more groups than, than just the Democratic Socialists of America pushing these kind of initiatives, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, um, oh, well, I'm going to get in trouble for leaving someone out now. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of great groups involved from Citizen Action of New York to the Alliance for Quality Education, um, there are a lot, a lot of groups involved, and I know somebody's going to tweet at me now for, for forgetting them. But uh, it, it truthfully is a, a massive sprawling um, coalition from organizations across New York State um, fighting for a bigger pie for all of us um, to ensure that there's funding for education and for transit and for energy and for healthcare and for uh, for housing. You know, really ensuring that we have we can fund the things we need. Right, and and can you give an example of, of some of the taxes? that y'all have in mind in terms of how exactly you go about getting that money? Sure. Uh, one of them, it's a package of six bills. One of them is, you know, not going to be too unfamiliar to anyone, but it's an increase on the personal income tax uh, in a much way that is much more progressive and, and really targets higher, higher income. And there'll be one I'll be introducing and, and, you know, sharing with Senator Sanders um, in the Senate, which is an heirs tax, tax on inherited wealth, um, you know, Inherited wealth has been the biggest driver of the uh, the racial wealth gap in terms of uh, white be white people being able to own um, very large estates or very large inheritances and, and pass them on um, with without with it being barely being taxed um, to to their children. Right, and and there was a push in 2019 uh, for a, a pied a terre tax for for millionaires and billionaires with uh, luxury second, third, fourth homes, and uh, that that died actually died in the assembly. Is is that uh, another uh, measure that's uh, back again? That uh, I, yes, I forget who is reintroducing it, and it's you know it's not part of the investment on New York package of six bills. But I think we're all in support of ways to you know 
tax, tax high incomes and tax um, high amounts of wealth. Right. And um, also uh, today, the uh, the MTA uh, postponed a, a subway fare hike that it was uh, contemplating uh, that would have uh, hit a lot of essential workers uh, at a really difficult time. Uh, your reaction to that and, and uh, how uh, the state should uh, uh, handle the MTA going forward, it's really taken a financial beating during the pandemic. I mean, I'm going to really applaud their decision to, to post, um, postpone that and, and not do the fair hike. It, it, we are still at a time where so many New Yorkers are still really, really struggling just to get by. And an increase like that would, would just, you know, direly affect the uh, the most at-risk members of, of, our, of our state. And if anything, we need to ensure that, you know, when we're increasing the revenue, we're able to fill in those budget gaps for the MTA uh, and you know, ensure that, you know, people can go where they need to go without um, the incessant fare hikes. Would you like to see the subways uh, running 24 hours again? Yeah, I, I mean, that is one of the most beautiful things about the New York subway system or the you know, New York transit system is that we have a, a claim to fame of having a 24-7 um, subway and bus service. And I, I think we should get back to that, especially, you know, with the opening up of 24-hour, excuse me, 24-7, like COVID centers, it's, it's really hard for people who, you know, want to get uh, who want to get to the center at, a, at an off hour if, if the trains are not running. Uh, absolutely. And, and I, w- I want to talk a little bit more just about sort of uh, your new life as a, a state senator. Uh, the Your story and the story of some of the other people you ran with on the uh, DSA slate uh, last last spring is is really fascinating. I mean, you've made the leap uh, from being a, a middle school teacher. Obviously, you were very active in DSA f- uh, for several years, and you'd been an activist for a number of years before that. But you've now made this leap from being a, a middle school teacher to a state senator, and uh, some of your other colleagues. I mean, Marcella Matanius was a tenant organizer. Uh, Farah Soufrant Forrest was a nurse. Uh, Zoran Mamdani was a, a foreclosure counselor. Uh, in terms of what that's uh, been like, uh, can you just talk about uh, navigating this whole new world in Albany that you're now a part of? Yeah, well, I'll start by saying, you know, I, I definitely miss my students. I, I do not miss the uh, the, the late light uh, lesson planning that I'll be doing uh, nightly. But um, the, the transition has been going well so far. You know, it is a lot. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have run for office if I didn't think it was important and that I, I could represent this district well. And, you know, it's been, it's been exciting to meet a lot of new colleagues and a lot of uh, new stakeholders uh, in, in the district and continually building with, with my colleagues. You know, we can ground ourselves because, you know, we constantly check in with each other, um, me and the other members of the socialist place, and check in. I, I lean on Senator Salazar heavily whenever I have um, freshman legislator questions um, that I'm just, I just need clarification on. And, and she's been a great asset in helping me navigate the waters as I, as I, you know, make my way through Albany. Right. And uh, uh, you joined us on WBI in June when you were uh, still a candidate for Senate District 25. And, and you spoke about yourself and, and, and the slate of uh, Democratic Socialists you were running with. And uh, I think I think we have a clip here from then. Uh, I, I want to run here for a sec. It really does feel sometimes like we're the socialist Power Rangers. You know, we have extreme, um, um, extremely working class people who are of their communities that are not your typical people that uh, came up through like typical stereotypical means or lawyers or you know business people that is are so commonly elected to um, office. But people that truly like live and suffer, like the people in our communities every single day that can speak to the the crisis that we're in firsthand, um, who see you know what it means like when people are getting evicted. Um, left and right in your district or when kids can't get an education or when our hospitals are underfunded. It it means something to us, not just in theory, but it's a lived experience. All right. That that was uh, a Jabari Brisport candidate for state Senate uh, joining us uh, last June from uh, right directly from a George Floyd protest in, in Brooklyn. Um, looking back then and, and now, uh, Senator Brisport, uh, if you could talk a little bit more about um, you know just being on the inside and, and, 
that the challenge of, of maintaining a balance between being effective on the inside and navigating all those relationships, but still being uh, someone who's uh, an agitator from the outside and, and, and building a movement from the outside. I mean, I think what's great about coming from an activist background is that I can bring all my passion from the streets right into the halls of Albany. And I am still meeting, I'm, I'm still, there's some legislators I, I still haven't met with yet that I'm, I'm excited to meet with. But, you know, when you're an organizer, it's all about building things, right? Even when you're out on the street shouting because you're trying to build a better world. And um, that's what I'm doing now in the, in the state Senate is I'm, I'm building together with my colleagues. I'm already joining with them to co-sponsor a legislation, progressive legislation. I'm, we're working on legislation together. And um, I'm still out, you know, I'm still out in the streets. I'm going to Hunts Point tonight. I was actually at a, a tax the rich um, to, to stop the fair hike rally earlier today and you know what's great about my line of work is that you don't need to give up your activism in order to become a legislator you, you can marry the two of them and I think it's important to continually check in with movements on the ground and have that outside um, that outside voice guiding you as you as you navigate you know the inner inside of the political structure right and uh, I mean speaking about uh, passionate movements from the outside. Uh, not all movements are uh, necessarily egalitarian-minded uh, or, or have uh, social justice as their priority, and we uh, saw that in particular on, on January 6th in Washington, D.C., with the insurrection that uh, Trump uh, inspired and the, the mob that marched down to uh, Capitol Hill and, and wreaked havoc and, and threatened the lives of a number of uh, legislators there. Um I wonder how are people uh, taking that in in Albany? Uh, are are there concerns that uh, the, these right wing extremists might show up there? There are definitely concerns, and you know, e- you know, even on the day of the six, you know, for uh, you know Senator Thomas, Kevin Thomas uh, was being harassed by someone on the highway. Some you know, some right winger or Trump supporter was following him on the highway and, and, and harassing him, and you know, our a lot of us do have the fear, you know, um, you know, some people have been like, you know, even gone so far to talk about, you know, removing their state place so they can't be identified as a, a politician um, for fear of harassment. And they, there has been an increased um, security presence at the Capitol building with an entrances uh, closed off to minimize the number of ways people can get, can get into the building. But I think that um, we are entering a new era with the transition of administrations um, from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. And, you know, um, I, I do think not having a person like Trump at the bully pulpit of the most powerful position in the world will cause a large shift in political discourse and the amount of, of emboldenment that right wing agitators feel. I mean, I think I even saw the amount of like fake news traveling around decrease precipitously after Trump was banned from social media platforms. Right. No, he's uh, he's truly been a, a political arsonist for the the past few years, um, yeah. and, and now they took uh, took a, a bunch of his uh, matches away. Um, and also, uh, looking b- back at this uh, uh, January sixth insurrection. Are, are you concerned that that sort of all protest and, and sort of all all unruliness in the streets will um, be uh, be tarred in the same way, and, and that that uh, movements from the left uh, demanding uh, justice uh, de- and you know demanding higher taxes on the rich and everything else that you're fighting for uh, will be uh, delegitimized. I'm be I'm going to be honest. I've heard that concern, and it, I'm of the opinion that movements from the left have actually been more targeted. And and seen as more dangerous than what we than what we saw on the sixth. I mean, I have seen I saw so many protesters brutalized for protesting that Black Lives Matter. And when you compare that to you know these right wing protesters um, violently storming the Capitol and almost being aided and abetted by police forces, um, you know I I do think it's important that we don't decide to just, you know, permanently increase police presence um, and police budgets in order to, you know, protect, you know, or, or you know, in order to, to deal with what happened on the 6th. But um, 
I don't know. I, I think there's always been more of a crackdown on leftist movements than, than these right wing attacks. Right. Uh, was certainly the. It, it certainly seems like the the right the right wing uh, gets a uh, gets a, a a free pass on on a lot yeah. of what a lot of what they do. I, I guess I was just curious if um, if in the the attempt to to crack down on the right wing, it, yeah, if if, if um, you know the media and, and and more mainstream political figures will um, recoil recoil in horror at, at the sight of any any protest, no matter what the the cause or the 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 inspiration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I hear that. Yeah, and I, I've even heard people say, you know, don't refer them to them as as, as terrorists, but that word will be used weaponized against the, against the left. And I know I still think it already was. You know, Donald Trump called every Black Lives Matter protester um, Antifa, and then said Antifa were terrorists. Um, this true. <laughs> this is, um, you know, we're. I, I almost feel like leftist movements are already under siege. But but I I do hear you, and I. I, I, that, that's all, that is why I don't think we should respond to this by saying more cops, more police, because inevitably that, that, that does end up coming back to, to harm, um, left wing movements. Right. And that, that, I mean, in, in DC, that Capitol Hill police force had a half billion dollar budget and, and over 2000 police officers in the end, they just opened the front door and watched people, uh, uh, pour on in. Mm-hmm. Um, Alrighty. And, uh, uh, I guess, uh, last of all, um, I guess one other subject that's, uh, you know, uh, very close to you is, is public education and, uh, your thoughts on the situation right now for, for public school teachers and students as the infection rates continue to climb. And there's a, a lot of concerns about this, uh, new variant of COVID-19 that's, uh, much more uh, transmissible, uh, uh, should, uh, should, Governor Cuomo uh, uh, pull back on the idea of, of trying to uh, get uh, students back into the classroom at, at this point in the in the pandemic. I, I mean, I really think we should wait until the vaccine is widespread and widely delivered. That you know, that's been my position for a while, and I it, it's continually putting uh, teachers and administration in danger or the families of some of these students. You know, who you know, um, if, if it begins to spread and um, you know, I really do think that the safest option is to wait till till the next uh, school year when we can have the vaccine much more widely distributed throughout the populace. All righty. Well, uh, we'll leave it there. But, uh, State Senator Jabari Brisport, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI 99.5, 99.5 FM this evening. Thanks. Okay. Thank you very much. Alrighty. Well, we'll be back uh, after this uh, short break.
Okay, well, welcome back to the Independent News Hour. Uh, that was uh, "Which Side Are You On?" by the Drop uh, the the Dropkick Murphys. And uh, let's see here. Um, uh, we're going to go to our next guest in 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 one moment. Um, just want to uh, encourage everybody uh, while we have a moment here uh, to uh, consider uh, giving to WBAI. Uh, and, and help uh, help keep the the station uh, going strong. Um, and uh, the the number you can call is is five one six six two zero three six zero two, or you can go straight to give to wbai dot org. Again, that number is five one six six two zero three six zero two. Um, and when you when you um, when you give, you can make a one-time donation, or you can sign up as a WBAI buddy uh, for ten dollars per month or more and help uh, keep WBAI shows like this and and uh, many other wonderful shows that uh, air every day on WBAI keep uh, community radio on the air. And um, we uh, we are going to in our next segment, we're going to uh, talk about. Um, really uh, uh, exciting new film documentary film uh, that has come out um, about uh, the Puerto Rican studies program at, at CUNY's Brooklyn College. Uh, it's a, it's a documentary that looks back on uh, a 50 year old struggle uh, to, um, to launch a Puerto Rican studies uh, program at, at Brooklyn College when uh, something like that was um, uh not uh, not uh, very very uh, well known or uh, considered, and um, and I I think part of what makes this uh, important to look back on again when we think about the Capitol Hill uh, insurrection, uh, there there really are uh, these two forces at work within our society. Uh, one that that wants to go back to uh, sort of a white man's republic. Uh, uh, really lean into white supremacy, and then there's uh, another force that wants to live, wants to build and create a multiracial, multicultural democracy uh, where there's room for everybody, and uh, really the the diversity that this country can can flourish, and, and uh, the struggle for the Puerto Rican uh, studies program uh, at uh, Brooklyn College was uh, really you know one of sort of an early flashpoint. Uh, in uh, in this uh, multi-decade uh, struggle over which direction the United States of America is going to go in as a society, and uh, to uh, talk about that with us uh, this evening, uh, we have uh, two guests. Um, we have uh, uh, Tammy Gold, a professor at Hunter College, an award-winning filmmaker and artist, and for decades her films have been at the forefront of social justice, uh, focusing on race, class, Islamophobia gender, sexual identity, and criminal justice. And uh, she's currently producing a documentary on decriminalizing uh, sex work. Uh, and, and, and she was the co-director of uh, Making the Impossible Possible, this uh, new uh, documentary on the, on the struggle for the Puerto Rican Studies Department at uh, Brooklyn College. And we're also joined uh, by uh, Dr. Maria uh, Perez uh, E. Gonzalez, Associate Professor and Deputy Chairperson in the Department of Puerto Rican and Latin Tino studies at Brooklyn College, uh, at Brooklyn College CUNY, and she's the co-editor editor of Fifty Years of Puerto Rican Studies in CUNY Book Project, and she's one of the interviewees in the 
in the documentary. Uh, Tammy and Maria, welcome to the Independent News Hour on WBAI. Thank you. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Delighted. Great. So, um, Tammy, let's start with you. Oh, you you've made a, a many documentaries. Uh, what was your inspiration for for making this one? Actually, we were invited to make it. The okay. story is, as an activist, I've done many different things making films, but I've also been involved with different struggles. So one of the things I'm pretty involved with is Jewish Voice for Peace, which is about the struggle to um, end the occupation of Palestine. And in the course of that, I became close to Esther Farmer, um, Pam Spawn, who's the other director-producer. And the two of us became close to Esther. And she brought us to the people who are involved with APRE and asked us if we would make the film. So it's one of these wonderful stories where there's a collaboration built really out of, out of activism, not coming to us just because of filmmaking, but because the people who wanted this trusted us politically and loved the fact that we were political activists filmmaker. And so that's the journey. Great. And, and uh, Maria, uh, looking back uh, all those years to when the struggle began, wh- uh, what was the inspiration for you to to uh, fight for this program and to bring Puerto Rican studies to Brooklyn College? Well, um, I'm not actually one of the founders. I do teach there and I chaired uh, the okay. Department of Puerto Rican Latino Studies um, for about 17 years. Uh, I just um, stepped down last year. Um, but in doing so, in sharing for so long and, and in terms of writing or editing the book project um, with the former chair of Puerto Rican Latino Studies, uh, Dr. Virginia Sanchez Coral, um, we have learned quite a bit and we have been in communication and contact. Some of the alumni are still very much involved with the department. Uh, Professor Antonio Nadal retired from the department in 2015. Um, so there are many of the, um, some of the adjuncts have been founders of the department. So uh, the motivation there was that they had entered college. Uh, a very few, um, a handful of Puerto Rican students had entered college. They looked around and said, how come there's only one culture or one background? And why, what happened to the rest of us? You know, we're not anywhere here. Um, and so they um, attended an anti-war protest in 1968, and that sort of began their journey. Um, and they teamed up with uh, the Brooklyn um, uh, the Brooklyn League of Afro-American Collegiates um, at Brooklyn College uh, and Black. Uh, so they were Black students, um, and they decided, well, Uh, we're going to go along. We're going to demand that uh, Black and Puerto Rican studies be taught. We're going to demand that an institute for Puerto Rican uh, and Black studies, you know, come into existence. We're going to demand greater faculty, uh, more students. There was a whole campaign um, that began from that. And and indeed, uh, it did change the face of the ivory tower forever, right? Over 50 years already. College, university life wasn't the same anymore. Uh, And CUNY was basically the central hub where you had this push uh, and it was established, Black Studies and Puerto Rican Studies. Um, So it's it's a great accomplishment for just a handful of students who created alliances with other groups, um, with the Students for a Democratic Society, um, right, with with the W.E.B. Du Bois Club. I mean, so there were right, groups of students who were already very politically active and aware that actually um, they formed alliances with and pushed for this. And, and of course, the backdrop of all this was the civil rights movements, right, going on, the anti-war protests, all of the unrest, the injustice. Um, and so uh, it's very similar to today, right? We see the climate today. And mm. indeed, it, it's, it's 50 years later, but here we are almost full circle again. Uh, we have made many strides. We have our departments of Puerto Rican studies, of Africana studies, um, et cetera, throughout the, you know, throughout the nation. Um, but some of the struggles, right, uh, resonate quite clearly, and, and some of them still remain the same. Mm-hmm. And, and this whole push about white supremacy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's very real. And, and we saw that, right, come to life uh, mm-hmm. recently. Um, we sure did. So, yeah. yeah. 
I was going to say one thing about, you know, when the, when the horrendous thing, and I hate when people talk about it lightly, the siege on the Capitol, the aggression, the white supremacy, the fascism, when that exposed it, itself on January 6th, this is not new. It's been here. It was invited by the administration, the Trump administration and everybody in it. It was invited to flourish and show itself. And I thought a lot about the takeover of the Capitol and the takeover at Brooklyn College of the president's office, because that's raised in the film. What's the difference? The difference is one's about multiculturalism, one's about the people, one's about universal public higher education, about breaking down doors and segregation. So here you have one action, nothing compared to the white supremacists, the anti-Semites that took over or made an attempt to take over the White House. But you mean take over Congress or I'm the Capitol, excuse yeah. me. The Capitol. Um I guess the point I'm making is we want to be strong and use strong tactics like the students did at, at Brooklyn College in 69. They did do remarkable things. I'm a professor at Hunter College. And Maria, you might be able to talk about students today at Brooklyn College. We have fabulous students. I don't know if there's a space to take over a president's office at this historic moment at the City University. And I am so encouraged, and I hope students are encouraged, not just within CUNY or in public higher ed, but throughout all schools, to understand the militancy and the strength that it took. Those young students in 1969, I mean, it's just amazing. And I think that was some of the spirit that Pam Spawn and I felt by looking at the footage. It was so exciting to see that courage and determination and that's one of the reasons why it's such an important film, as as gentle and small film is. I've never made a film so fast in my life. <laughs> we shot for four days. It was a four-day shoot, maybe four and a half. We had to maximize everything we did while we were shooting. We had to have two locations for all the interviews. We did the... Um, Latinos in support of Black Lives Matter demonstration. And we did the demonstration in front of Brooklyn College where um, the Department of Puerto Rican Studies was demanding the rehiring of adjuncts that were all uh, uh, fired within, what, 24, 30 hours. And so we really saw that a film could be made with a very small budget and have a huge impact. And I think that's something we can all learn. And it couldn't have been done without Apre. It could not have been done without Hiseli, who's Colon, who's one of the other producers, who's a member of Apre. And she's also a graduate of Brooklyn College, Puerto Rican Studies, and someone who's going on to get her PhD now, which will focus on this whole area of study and scholarship. None of this could have been done without this collaboration. Right. And I wanted to ask uh, Maria, can you talk a little bit more about the um, the curriculum of the Puerto Rican Studies program? What, what exactly is uh, imparted uh, th through the program and, and, and why it's uh, so beneficial to the students who participate in it? Absolutely. Uh, Puerto Rican and Latino Studies, um, because it, it originated as Puerto Rican Studies, but then in 1998, we did include Latino um, because of the demographics in New York City. Um, and so with Puerto Rican and Latino studies, we say PRLS, pearls. Uh, so that we consider Brooklyn College the treasure box and, and we are the pearls of that treasure box. Um, nice. But definitely pearls is for all students from all walks of life. And it's about teaching students how to think critically, right? Think critically about these Latino groups. Think critically about the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States, clearly a colonial relationship. 
Um, it is about students learning about the largest right ethnic group in the United States. They're your neighbors. They're your friends. They're your family. They're your lovers. Uh, I mean, they're you know Latinos are an integral uh, an integral uh, part of the United States and Latinos, right, have been here before the United States was created. Um, <laughs> Spanish was spoken here before the Latin, you know, the, the, um, the United States existed. Before the pilgrims, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So it's about teaching students a different perspective, right? It's about widening the lens of how we see the story of the United States, mm-hmm. right? It's about um, including those whose voices and stories have usually been either ignored, minimalized, um, made invisible. And mm-hmm. so this film making uh, the impossible possible is exactly right. You know, who would have thought that a few students, right? Puerto Rican students, you know, who just, um, you know, some of them were born in Puerto Rico, some, you know, were born here, but they were recent, right? Uh, A recent migrant group to the United States, Mm -hmm. yes, with U.S. citizenship, but in all other senses, in terms of culture and language, very different, right? The experience of an immigrant group. And, and, um, and, and these these young people in 1969 would have almost all been the first yes. uh, generation in their family to go to college. Yes, and, any of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it was key. Um, I mean, they had to fight their way in, right? Programs like SEEK uh, let them in, the Equal Opportunity Program. And once they got in, they looked around and said, why are we the only ones, you know, here? There's too few of us. Let's mm-hmm. let's try to open this up. And and so they did. They fought for the good cause, right? That what Tammy was saying before, this movement, the student movement, the civil rights, human rights movement was built so that people can be included, not excluded. Uh-huh. It was based and founded on social justice, on love for your neighbor, right? And and justice for your neighbor, love for your culture and love. for people. Um, so it was about bringing in people, opening, you know, sort of the ivory tower gates, right, to, to let the rest of the people in. Um, and so CUNY, yeah, was was sort of ground zero, right, for that. Ground zero. You Absolutely. know, I want you to say that being someone who is a professor still at Hunter College, I've been there 33 years. We can't romanticize where we are, though. It's still an ivory tower. We still have very few faculty of color. Yes. We still have very few openly queer faculty. Mm-hmm. We don't have faculty except maybe a few, a handful who are transgender. So we have to remember, we need to do so much more. I have seen when I started in 1987, we had more black students than we do in 2021. We have to ask some hard questions. We have less Puerto Rican students now than we ever had in the past. I'm only talking about Hunter College. Okay. We have not achieved. We have not achieved it. And that's why we have to keep on the table ethnic studies. It has to remain on the table. The fight for ethnic studies is the fight Basically, what Maria said, it's a fight to say, I love my neighbor. I want to get to know my neighbor. That's it. Right. We're, we're going to have to uh, um, uh, leave here in the probably in the next uh, 30 to 40 seconds. So uh, okay. real quick, uh, Tammy or Maria, uh, can you share uh, with our audience uh, when, when and where people might have the chance to see this movie? Tomorrow, tomorrow night. Um, it's playing at Wendy's subway and that's an art space and if it was physical we'd be going to bushwick but it's an art space can and uh, a professor and student at the graduate center is doing a whole series on um the struggle at cuny the struggle in terms of students in terms of admissions in terms of um, militant struggles so this is a uh, a residency that is being done and they're showing the film so tomorrow if you go to the website, wendyssubway.com, I think, or .org, or com, but, it, but Google it, um, and you can always go to Wendy's Subway uh, Facebook page, and they're going to be streaming the film and the panel. So your audience, John, is welcome. Please okay. come. And then it's going to have many screenings in February, 
and in March. Okay. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we have to go now. But uh, uh, Tammy Gold and, and Maria Perez Gonzalez, uh, thank you so much for joining us on uh, uh, the Independent News Hour this evening. You're welcome. Keep up the good fight. Okay, thank you. You too. La lucha sigue. Sigue, sigue, sigue. Palante. Palante. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye. Right. Bye. Okay. So that uh, about wraps it up for uh, tonight's show. Many thanks to our producer, Alma Gagarian, for all her help. And uh, please remember to give generously to WBAI 516-620-3602 or give to WBAI.org. We'll be back same time next week. PFW and WBAI present Normalcy, Never Again. Pacifica Radio's inaugural coverage centered in the hope and critique of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Wednesday, January 20th, 11 a.m. until 8 p.m. Normalcy, Never Again was actually the title of Dr. King's commonly known I Have a Dream speech rendered at the March on Washington. Programming will offer analysis of the Biden-Harris cabinet within the context of Dr. King's triple evils, examine their policies and political records, unpack what a people's mandate looks like, what the new administration must do to make the people whole, and how a return to political normalcy cannot bring about the bold change so sorely needed in this country. We'll also take you to the resistance in the streets, as well as engage listeners on their vision of how to transform America. That's normalcy. Never again. The Biden inauguration and the National People's Mandate, presented by WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, Wednesday, 11 a.m. until 8 p.m. Pacifica Radio, visioning a new world, one broadcast at a time. This is Margaret Flowers with Clearing the Fog, speaking truth to expose the forces of greed. Clearing the Fog is a radio program that you'll hear on WBAI, Pacifica Radio, 99.5 FM in New York City on Tuesday mornings at 11 a.m. And on Clearing the Fog, I interview activists, authors, journalists, academics about what's going on in the social movements and what is the reality that you're not going to hear on a corporate sponsored radio station. They'll, these are people that dig into the facts to let you know without the corporate spin how things are actually going and what you're not being told by the corporate media. And Clearing the Fog is so fortunate to be a regular show now on WBAI so that you can hear this content that you won't hear in other places, certainly not on commercial radio. So, Please value WBAI. Running a radio station is not something that can be done for free. WBAI doesn't have these corporate sponsors that give it, you know, large amounts of money. It's really driven by you. It's independent. It's listener supported. And that money is needed each month to keep the doors open to the station, to keep the equipment functioning, to keep, you know, a few staff who can keep that radio station 
going. The people who host the programs are not getting paid to host these programs. We do it because it's a labor of love, but there does have to be staff who can keep that radio station going. And that's what the wonderful folks at WBAI do. So please support WBAI by going to WBAI.org and making a donation today. Thank you. The previous program was the Independent News Hour, her Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News coming.